Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Wow. Sometimes they just get to showing off, don't they? (laughs) You guys are pretty awesome. Good morning, North Monroe. Good to see you guys. Good morning online. Welcome to worship. Take your Bibles out. Let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you can't find Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it's right after chapter (laughs) 2. We'll give you about 30 minutes. My brother had a friend uh, who owned a bank in White Wright, Texas. Um, John owned a bank because his dad owned a bank. John wasn't much of an outdoorsman, right? But John had a skunk problem. And so he goes down to the hardware store and says, I've got a skunk problem. They said, well, here's a cage. Trap the skunk. (laughs) So he's going to trap the skunk. And John somehow manages to trap the skunk. He puts the cage out, traps the skunk. He's so proud of himself, he wants to show his wife what he's done. So he carefully picks up the skunk cage and gingerly walks up to the door and says, honey, come here, you got to see this. And when she opens the door, she sees the skunk and screams, freaks the skunk out. He sprays her and the foyer of the house and all of that just goes bad. I mean, I still laugh when I think about it. She spent the next like two weeks at a luxury hotel in Dallas, and he spent the rest of the year in the doghouse. You know what I'm saying? That was probably the most expensive skunk in the history of skunks. But here's the principle. When you mess with skunks, you're going to get skunky, right? The same is true of life. As we walk in this world, it's hard for us not to get worldly. And that was Solomon's problem. Solomon had lived so long in the world that the world was now living in him. And so he writes this book of Ecclesiastes because he's dealing with all the same problems, pathology, sin, despair, heartache, anxiety, pressure, stress, tension, and hopelessness that the world has. And so Ecclesiastes becomes for us a cautionary tale. Here's what I've learned. Don't do what I did. That's essentially it because my life stinks. And when you start out in Ecclesiastes, it begins with a downbeat, and then it goes down from there. Vanity of vanity, meaningless, meaningless, so everything's meaningless. What advantage does man have in all of his labor that he does under the sun? And so for the next two chapters, I mean, we've just been kind of slugging through it, and after a while, it just becomes so despairing and depressing that you feel like you need a shower, you know, that life just stinks. That's, but I get it, Solomon, life stinks. But then at the end of chapter 2, it's almost like he comes to himself. There's this moment of clarity. And he suddenly realizes, hey, life stinks without God, but it's totally different with the Lord. It's like, you know, that story of the prodigal that Jesus told about the, the, the son that went out and spent all of his inheritance on riotous living and finally came to a point where he's working for some tyrant in a pig farm, and he's in the pig farm, and he realizes, hey, wait a minute, on my, on my, my father's farm, uh, the, the hired workers do better than this. And the Bible uses this phrase, he came to himself. And that word meant to come out of a coma. Well, that's what's happening to Solomon. There's a moment of lucidity where suddenly he backs up and he remembers all that he knew at the beginning. 
And really, if you, if you read this book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to see that for Solomon, unlike the prodigal, he, it doesn't just happen all at once, but it's almost phased in, phased out. He'll come to this moment of clarity, and then he'll phase back into the despair, and then back to clarity. And you see this working out at least about five or six times in this text. But in, in chapter 2, really starting in verse 24, he basically says, I can't find meaning in this life without God, but I can't find it with Him. There is, uh, this is Ecclesiastes 2.24. And we looked at this verse last time. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat, who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge, and look at this, and joy. He's finally stepped away from the quagmire of critical thinking and navel-gazing and all of this chasing after the wind and all of this vanity. And he comes to, to, to himself and he arrives at the old conclusion he already knew, which is the best thing to do is to love life, be grateful, trust in the Lord. And what he begins to describe in Ecclesiastes 3 is how that really fleshes itself out in life. And so he unpacks this idea in three, and there's really two profound overarching ideas that emerge from chapter three for me. One is live a simple life, and the other is hold on to a simple faith. Um, so let's start with the simple life. My biggest complaint against uh, this cultural mess that we seem to be in is that everybody is so extreme these days. Everybody has taken such extreme positions. It's almost as if everybody thinks they know everything and everybody feels like they should be in control of everyone, right? Now look, when I say that, I'm not talking about extreme faith. You got that? We're to be extreme in our faith. Jesus said, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. We die, we give 110% of our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's extreme in every measure. But at the same time, we need to realize that there are people in our life who do not see life the way we see life. And we have to be considerate and gracious and winsome and always remember that our calling is not to be right, but to be holy and to be compassionate. And we have to find balance in that and find balance in, in the, the peace to simplify. That's what Ecclesiastes 3 is all about. You say, well, how do I find balance? Look at verse 1. There's an appointed time for everything, and there's a time for every event under heaven. Now, at first blush, this seems to be all about time, and I've read different teachers who talk about it as if it were about time. I've read commentaries that say, you know, it's about making the most of your time. And I get that, but I really don't think that's the central idea here. It's not about managing your quantity of time. It's about understanding the appropriateness of quality time. It's more about the appropriateness of time. You know, in the New Testament, there are two words that are used for time. One is chronos, it's where we get the word chronometer. It's a measurement of time. And the other is kairos, and it has to do with the quality of time. This is dealing more with that second concept. This is about being appropriate at the proper time and about balance, and balance brings perspective. And so each of these uh, verses has two 
sets of couplets in it. And they basically say the same thing in a different way uh, so that you can discern the single idea. But the key is balance. And it's about appropriateness. It's about understanding that what you're going through right in this moment isn't what you're always going to be going through. And so we see both sides of that. And we start with this in verse 2. Sometimes we start, sometimes we stop. That that would be my overarching idea of verse 2. A time to give birth, a time to die. I was with a friend recently that was dying. And while he was on his bed dying, we got a phone call that his granddaughter had given birth. And I thought, that's so appropriate. As one soul is leaving this planet, another one is coming. And that's just true of life. And then I got to thinking about that. You know, of these two most important events in our life, being born and dying, we have no control whatsoever over either of those. And yet, it's been appointed that that is going to happen in every life. Verse 2, he says it again a different way. A time to plant, a time to uproot what is planting. I'm no farmer, but when I look at the crops, you know, and I drive by their crops like you do all the time, uh, this being an agrarian world that we live in, um, you know, there's a time where they're plowing the ground. There's a time where they're planting the seeds. There's a time where the plane is flying over and it's fertilizing and the crops are growing and they're watering and, and then it's time for harvest and the threshers go through and the harvesters go through and they're harvesting. And then what happens after that? Well, they have to go back in and they have to plow everything under, right? And so there's a time for for uprooting what is planted. And that really helps me. Uh, it helps me to understand and deal with loss that all of this is a, a part and parcel to life that sometimes I'm harvesting and sometimes I'm starting over. There's a time to start and a time to end. And then he says, there, sometimes we end it and sometimes we mend it. A time to kill and a time to heal. And this is a hard truth, but it's so true. There's a time to kill. What's every hunter's favorite verse? Acts eleven seven. Arise, Peter, and kill, right? It's every hunter's favorite verse. And I know there are some of you who hate the thought of killing animals, and because of that, you're going to only eat vegetables. I get that. But you do know that a vegetable is a living thing too, don't you? I mean, let's... See, I'm kind of a hypocrite. I don't like to kill animals, but I love to eat venison. So, you know, I'll admit my hypocrisy in this. But at the end of the day... Here's a truth that we can't get away from. The harsh truth is we cannot live unless something else dies. We have to kill in order to live. It may be a plant. It may be an animal. And you know, every time I drive my car, I'm a natural born killer. I kill dragonflies and butterflies and love bugs. And I hate to admit it, there's been a squirrel or two. And I've tried to avoid the turtles, but ever so often, you know, I don't mean to. And, it, and I wonder, I never hear the argument, uh, when you hear the argument against killing, you never hear the argument against driving. But, you know, a dragonfly is a life. Is it uh, only large life, mammalian life matters, or is it all life matters? You know, what I'm saying is, there is a time to kill, and there's a time, it's not all killing, you know. Don't put that sticker on. If it flies, it dies, you know, because there's a time also to heal, right? He says it in a different way, a time to tear down and a time to build up. Same idea, a time to end it, a time to mend it. I've got this old barn chicken coop in my backyard. I built it out of wood about 10 years ago. Louisiana hates wood. I don't know why this environment hates wood. So it's rotting. The termites are in it. So guess what? I've got to tear the barn down and start over and rebuild because there's a time to tear down and a time to build up. And I realized in doing that, that sometimes God will allow my world to get torn down so that he can build it back better. 
Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry. Time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time for weeping. It's an important part of grief. Grief has to get out. And hurts can, you know, sadly be far more spiritual than, than joys. Uh, my, you know, think about your life. The greatest moments of growth in your life were often those times of, of greatest sorrow and grief. And, and so it becomes a part of life. You know, I, I'd say this, that which makes your life difficult could be what makes you necessary. And God uses that stuff to equip us and to build in us the nature of Christ. And we grow the most through it. But you know, I don't want to get stuck in grief. There's a time to mourn, but there's also a time to laugh. I love to be around people who laugh. I mean, our home was always a place of great laughter. We would just belly laugh around the dinner table because Amy and I, we always wanted to put laughter in the walls, you know. And I, I love to be around people with a good sense of humor. In, in verse 4, he, he says it a different way. He says, a time to mourn and a time to dance. You know, there's time to, of sorrow and a time of laughter. There's time to mourn. There's time to dance. You know, I don't know. Should we, as Baptists, should we write, scratch that one out? You know, <laughs> how can we oppose dancing when it says there's a time to dance? I don't get it. Some people ask me, can Baptists dance? And I always say, some can, some can't. (laughs) We don't laugh all the time. That's annoying. Scripture says that it's like a cold wind to sing songs to a troubled heart. But also, we don't cry all the time because that's depressing. Do you feel the balance? And the balance brings perspective because it reminds me that right now I'm weeping, but joy comes in the morning. And I don't get stuck in that extreme. And I don't say that because I'm sorrowful or I'm grieving that everybody else ought to be too. And this is the normal condition of life. Do you feel the balance that's been lost in our world? Sometimes we hug it out. Sometimes we slug it out. Time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. Sometimes you want to throw a rock at your mate, right? I love that old country western song, I just want to be mad for a while. You like that one? I'm not going to leave. Don't touch me. I just want to be mad for a while. And I thought about this. Sometimes we throw stones. Sometimes we gather stones. And it really depends on what you're throwing the stone at, right? And I got to thinking, what would that be about? And here's what I, I came to. I think we throw stones when we want to drive something away. Like if a bear comes in, what am I going to do? Well, if I got a rock, I'm throwing it. If I got a mad dog, I'm going to throw a rock. Because I, I don't hate the bear or the dog. I just need to get him away from me. And so there, there are times when we throw the stone. There are other times when we gather stones. And, you know, in the Old Testament mind, that was always celebratory. It was like, it was like a Thanksgiving. We come together and gather stones. Thus far, God has helped us, you know. And so it's a time for coming together. Here's another way of saying it, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. Slug it out, hug it out. When the boys were little and they would do something because of their fallen nature, we didn't spank all the time. We only spanked two things. We spanked lying and willful defiance. So if I said, don't cross that line, and that little guy walked over there and stuck his toe over the line, he's going to get a swat on the rump. But when we would spank our kids... Right after we would spank them, they always wanted a hug. 
And they would come up and just want to hug us. And I remember my little niece was watching it one time and she said, why do you hug him right after you spanked him? And I said, because that's what he needs the most right now. Sometimes we embrace and sometimes we shun embracing. Sometimes we throw stones. Sometimes we gather them. Sometimes we hold on. Sometimes we let go. Verse 6, a time to search and a time to give up is lost. I hate losing things. We lost my glasses last week. See these glasses? They were lost. Completely lost. Um, in fact, I was talking about it at the men's lunch and uh, Ben Dillingham went out and got me a pair of glasses just to wear so I could see. But I've got these on today because they're bifocals so I can see my notes, but they're all scratched up. And we looked and looked and looked. I'm out building the barn. I take them off. I put them on my shirt. They fall off my shirt. I don't know where they are. We're driving down the road trying to see if they fell out, blew out of the back of the truck. You know, we looked for a day. And finally, we gave up as lost. About a week later, Amy finds them in the chicken coop. They're a little bit, they smell a little like chicken. So, (laughs) but sometimes you search and sometimes you give up. Sometimes you just got to let it go, right? You hold on, you let go. A time to keep, look at verse six, a time to keep and a time to throw away. I quote this one to my wife a lot. Time to keep, a time to throw away, baby. Our attic still has every Happy Meal toy the kids ever got. <laughs> you got to hold things loosely. I love what Corey Tim Boom, she said, hold things loosely so it doesn't hurt when God has to pry your fingers off of it. Sometimes we connect, sometimes we disconnect. It says, a time to tear apart, a time to sew together. Mama used to sew dresses, and I'd go to the fabric store when I was a little kid. She'd sew and sew and sew, and then all of a sudden I'd look up and she's tearing it all out and she's cutting it because she, she didn't do it right. And Sometimes we've got to do that. Sometimes we come together. Sometimes we pull apart. Look, it's just a time to be silent, a time to speak. Sometimes I need conversation. Sometimes we need isolation. Sometimes we confront. Sometimes we reconcile. Verse 8, a time to love and a time to hate. And hate's a hard word, I know. We don't think we should ever hate, but there are some things we need to hate. We need to hate racism. We need to hate injustice. We need to hate sin. God hates sin. He loves you, but He hates sin because He hates what sin does to you. And sometimes the most loving thing you can do to someone is hate their sin for them and be willing to risk the relationship to confront the sin so that the sin doesn't overpower them. Um, Second couplet clarifies it. It says, a time for war and a time for peace. Do you feel the balance of both? It's not always one or the other. It's both. And we stay off the extreme. We live a simple life. And here's the problem. You can't live a simple life with extremes. Extreme living overcomplicates life and robs you of joy. And that's the problem Solomon had. He didn't just have one wife. He had a thousand wives. He didn't just have one horse. He had hundreds of horses. He didn't just have a little gold. He had all the gold. And because of his obsessions and his extremeness, his life was so overly complicated and yet still filled with such emptiness. And extreme opinions invariably lead to conflict and that robs us of joy. The key to finding balance is a simple life. And here's the thing. The key to the simple life is simple faith. So stay with me, okay? Look at verse 9. He says, what profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? Now, wait, watch this. When you look back over at chapter 2, you'll see that he asks almost the exact same question. What 
profit is for the laborer in all the work that he does. Look at 2.22. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving uh, with which he labors under the sun? And then notice the desperate conclusion of chapter 2. Now watch this. Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This to his vanity. Now go back over to to 3 verse 9. He's asked the same question again, but this time there's a very different answer. Watch verse 10. I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He's made everything appropriate in its time. He's also said eternity in their heart. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Now here's his conclusion, verse 13. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it's the gift of God. Wait a minute. In chapter 2 he said, what's the good of all the labor? It's vanity and striving after the wind. In in chapter 3 he says, what's the good of all the labor? He said, it's good. It's the gift of God. Same question, different conclusion. What's up with that? Well, the first time he asked the question without God, and the second time he asked the question with God. The first time it was all about in man we trust, in reason and the rational mind. The second time, it's in God we trust. And that simple faith changes everything. We don't have time to walk through all of that's left in chapter 3, but let me dance across a couple of things. Two things we know about God. First of all, we know that God's in control. Look at verse 11. He has made everything appropriate. And that word made is the same word that's used of creation in Genesis 1.1. God created. He's made everything appropriate. He's in control of all of that, which means I don't have to be. Second thing we know about God is that He knows. He's already set... He's also set eternity in their heart. So God's put eternity in our heart. And I would say this, if the naturalist is right and there's no heaven, then why do human beings everywhere long for something that doesn't exist? You can go anywhere, any culture in the world, and you're going to find a longing for heaven because God wrote that in our heart when he created us. But read the rest of it because here's the problem. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. He's put eternity in our hearts, but it's too big for us to understand. In fact, in fact, Paul says, uh, eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those that love him. I can't wrap my head around it. Years ago, I, I fell off a skateboard when I was a student pastor, and I got an infection in my elbow, and I had this uh, home care nurse uh, who was a Mormon named Art who came to my house every day uh, to give me the IV antibiotics, and we obviously struck up a conversation. And, and invariably the conversation when you, when you talk to a Mormon always reverts back to the Trinity uh, because they're non-Trinitarian. And it's like, how could God be three and yet one? He said, God is a rational person, right? I mean, why wouldn't it make sense? And I said, Art, are you trying to tell me you think God should fit between your ears? Because He doesn't fit between mine. There's no way I'm going to understand all that. And so I just live with the question mark, and I'm fine with that because simple faith allows that. You're never going to figure all that stuff out. He's put eternity in our hearts. You say, so why did He put it there? Well, I think God put eternity in our hearts so that we would never mistake this home for our real one. C.S. Lewis said this, Our Heavenly Father has provided many delightful ends for us along our journey, but He takes great care to see that we do not mistake any of them for home. 
And don't miss this point. There's still so much we don't know. In fact, the only part of God that I know is what he's chosen to reveal. And that's enough. He didn't reveal all of himself to me. He's not going to reveal all of himself to me, but he's revealed enough. And what he has revealed is more than I can handle. But because God knows and God is in control, those are the two things. I can choose joy. Look at verse 12. I know that there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It's the gift of God. I don't have to be miserable. I don't have to be stirred up and extreme. I can enjoy every ounce of every minute. And I don't have to run the world. He says, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it and there's nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That which has been already and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. He's talking about the sovereignty of God. And then he turns to the injustice of the world. Watch what he says. I don't know why bad things sometimes happen. Verse 16. Furthermore, I've seen under the sun that in the place of justice, there's wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, there's wickedness. Now, normally that would eat him alive. If he's still Solomon in the, in, in, in the worldly perspective, the natural, atheistic, carnal worldview, that's going to eat him alive. But this time it doesn't. He said, I said to myself, and here it is, and this is simple faith, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked. For a time for every matter and for every deed is there. You say, well, how can I do all that? Simple faith. Simple faith. Years ago, we went to Disney World. I guess it's kind of like a rite of passage, like going to Mecca if you're a Muslim. I don't know, but it seemed like everybody's got to someday go to Disney World. I hope we're getting over that because Disney's not Disney, right? But uh, we went to Disney World. And at the time, my son Micah was five years old. He's 26 now. 26, 27, I always get it wrong. He's 26 now, so 21 years ago. Now, his oldest brother is nine years older than him, so he was 14, so we're going to Disney World with a preschooler and a teenager. And when you've got a teenager and a preschooler, you sort of forget to view life through the preschooler's eyes. And so everybody wants to go to Pirates of the Caribbean. So we're like, okay, let's go to the Pirates of the Caribbean. So we're in line for the Pirates of the Caribbean. You know, they have this long queue where you have to wait in line. And Disney was so good about creating environments and the smell and the sounds of the pirates and all that stuff's going on. And, and the kind of the fog that you kind of walk through. And it gets a little spookier, feel like you're going into some pirate dungeon. And, and as we're walking, I feel Micah reach up and grab my hand. And as we walk a little further, the grip gets a little tighter because I forgot to look at this thing through the eyes of a five-year-old. We're looking at it through the eyes of a 14-year-old who's pretty excited. Come on, y'all, hurry up. The five-year-old's like slowing down. And we turn a corner, and I don't know if they still have this, but there was sort of this kind of cutout over here, and you could see through, and there was a skeleton and he had hold of an old wheel, and the wind was blowing, and he's got the wheel, and he's, he's like doing this animatronic stuff. And Micah goes, as serious as he can without sounding any alarm, he goes, Dad, Dad. I said, what, Micah? He said, let's get out of here. <laughs> and it was kind of too late to get out. So I picked him up, and I said, buddy, None of it's real. I'm real. None of that's real. It's going to be okay. It's a little scary right now, but in a minute, it's going to get real fun, and you're going to love this ride. Just hold on to me. 
man, he put his arms around my neck and we went on through and got in. The whole thing just sort of immersed him and he came out going, that was the most awesome thing ever, you know? And when I walked out of that, I thought, you know, life's kind of like that, isn't it? There are moments where I don't know and I'm afraid and maybe I'm in pain or I'm grieving or something else is going on and I got God's hand and I'm like, Man, I don't know about this. Let's get out of here. And he just kind of picks me up and says, look, it's okay. Trust me. That stuff's not real, but I am. You just hold on. You're going to love this ride. And if you'll just hold on by simple faith, you're going to love the ride. Now, sometimes you're going to grieve, and sometimes you're going to celebrate, and sometimes you're going to tear apart, and sometimes you're going to sew together, and there's a balance to all of it. And as long as we see, here's the thing. I don't have to know everything. And I don't have to control everything. I just have to know the one that does. And I got to stay close to him. And in those moments where those things are stirring my world and it's dragging me to extreme, simple life based on simple faith. You got it? Now, some of you are there right now. And it's time to just get closer to the one that knows it all and trust the one that's in control. That's your calling. You know Jesus, but man, it's just a little scary right now. Just stay close to the one that knows it all and controls it all. You don't have to know it. You don't have to control it. And avoid extremes. But some of you don't know that one, and that's your place just to say, hey, man, I'm, I'm in this deal alone. No wonder I'm so scared. I need to know the one that made me and the one that knows me and the one that controls me. Would you do that this morning? You're like, how do I do that? Well, cry out to him. It's just real simple. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. He'll change your life forever. Would you just pray with me right now? I just feel like it's so appropriate for us just to make, what if we made this our commitment? Father, keep us from extremes. This world is extreme and it stinks. And we live in it. And it's hard when we live in a world for the world not to live in us. But that's not our calling. So Father, we give our extreme opinions to you. Father, we give up control of this world to you. I don't have to control anybody else. And I ask the Spirit to control me. That I would walk in joy and peace and gratefulness. Father, give us balance. Help us to gain perspective. And Father, right now in this moment for that one, that other, that they just need to know you just to cry out to you, God. I just need Jesus. Man, I'm in this crazy world and it's not making any sense. And I feel like Solomon. I'm being blown all over the place. I just need Jesus. Father, let your will be done in our lives that we would be your people marked by your faith, celebrating your joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life 
and make him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.